Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week is Palm Sunday in the Christian tradition, and we're reading the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as told in Matthew 21, 1-17. While the text is a familiar one for many, Matthew's version has some intriguing surprises along the way. Jesus seems to ride on two animals at the same time in this text, both a donkey and a colt. And Jesus seems to take these animals from their owner without permission. What is Matthew up to in telling the story in this dramatic way? What's more, Matthew combines the story of Jesus' entry with the story of Jesus overturning the money changers in the temple, and then of Jesus healing the blind and lame in the temple while children proclaim, Hosanna to the Son of David. In our reading, this text invites us to examine the ways our own communities are going about business as usual while excluding the most vulnerable members of society. It invites us to acts of disruption that shake us out of comfortable modes of operation to make our communities houses of prayer for all people. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am doing all right. How are you? I am also doing all right. This morning, when I was taking my teenagers to school, my son, I could see that he sent me a text because I have like my phone up on the thing, but like I didn't look at the text. He's sitting Wait. next to me in the car. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. And he sends me a text. <laughs> yeah. Yes. This is, this is, I don't know why, but this is a normal thing that happens. He sent me a screenshot of something. He sends me a lot of like silly nonsense. So whatever, I didn't look at it. And then a minute later while we're driving to school, he says, can I delete that text I just sent you? <laughs> so my question for you this morning is what would you would you have then looked at the text or would oh, you have absolutely. said yes you can delete the text. You would have looked at it. Oh yeah. I got to know what's in that text. <laughs> absolutely I got to know what's in that text. I told him I let him delete it. That you're probably a better person than I am. Well, I just was like whatever you sent me that you didn't mean to send me. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to know. And yeah. then he oh, just so you think it. he meant to send it to somebody else? I don't know what he meant to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> but I let him delete the text, but now I'm like a little obsessed with like, what, what, what was the text? Yeah, you probably made the right choice. I think that's probably the right choice is to let somebody like control the information that they share with you. But I really want to, I want to know, like, I want to know right now. What was in your text? It's not, not just what my kid sent me, but what your kid sent you. But, uh-huh. but we shall never know. I'll see if I can get it out of him later or at least the genre. But he might just lie at this point. So, yeah, we're never going to know. It's <laughs> never never going to know. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was trying to make the transition, but I— yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. We were on the way to school, and Jesus is on the way into Jerusalem. Into Jerusalem. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you were riding in the car. He was riding apparently on two donkeys. Per- <laughs> yes. It seems like it'd be hard for like the hip flexors to yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had a whole conversation on the Bible Room Collaborative about how exactly, like, was was he, I like to pick, we'll talk about this later, but in Matthew's gospel, he does seem to be riding two animals, maybe. And I like to think of him as like standing up, one foot on each one and like holding on to the, <laughs> like he's like water skiing or like wow. something like that. Like, woohoo. That's terrifying. But it That'd actually says he sat on them. So I think maybe he, but that just seems like. It just seems painful to think about riding with one leg over one Jesus donkey. Jesus was a gymnast. He was, he was very flexible. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we were not sitting like that in my little Prius on the way to the high school. No. No. Alas. All right. So, Amy, as we have alluded, we are in the story for Palm Sunday in the Christian tradition in the narrative lectionary, which is back in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 to 17 today, which is the triumphal entry and then a couple of other things that are related. We Last time, we're in Matthew 25. And so for the last few weeks, mm-hmm. we've been reading parables that Jesus told in Jerusalem after this event. And now we're backing up. So here's one of the places where the sort of narrative flow and the liturgical calendar of the Christian year are at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And so instead of doing the triumphal entry a month ago when it occurred narratively, we're jumping backwards. Mm -hmm. Do you, I don't know what we need to do by way of setting up where we are in the text, but is there anything you think like we need to reorient ourselves to, to get ready for this one? I feel like yes. And I also, okay, I'm going to teach you a Yiddish word that is very useful. (laughs) Okay. The word is schwach and it means like weak, like, Uh. like lame. I'm going to give you a really like, this is weak. Like, you can have a schwach seder that's like, we're just going to do, like, the bare possible minimum. We're not going to do anything fancy here. Yeah. Well, I, like I do feel like it would be useful. Like, this is taking us back into the plot. We've been right. out of the plot for a while in this sort of world of teachings. And so I was trying to look back and say, like, where, where are we plot-wise? And there are just so darn many teachings, Bobby. It's a little hard to— <laughs> Yeah. It's a little hard to pin down, like— where we are, what I've got, and maybe you can add to this, is that it says a chapter before this in chapter 20 that they're they're going up to Jerusalem. Like, we know that they're on the way to Jerusalem. Right. There's this whole conversation that Jesus has with just his disciples, again, you know, telling them that bad things are going to happen. Well, he doesn't say it that way, but really quite precisely what's going to happen. And he'll be consumed to death condemned to death and mocked and flogged and crucified and raised. The disciples continue to have their little bit of like desire for special status worked out. I know from like the outside world that work that it's spring. Yes. How do you know? Because I know when Easter is. <laughs> right. And also Passover, which is why Jesus yes, is Yes, and Passover. Out. Right. Yes. So that's like cheating, but I think helpful cheating. Yes. Can you think of anything else just sort of like plot wise that we should remember. It is so interesting that this year of the narrative lectionary has mostly been not narrative. It's mostly, I mean, they've been narratives, but they've been (laughs) paradives. Yeah. But they've been parables, like these little self-contained narratives. Almost this entire spring, we've been talking about the teachings of Jesus. To me, what you said is important. I think that it's Passover. That's, that's important. And that this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has been to Jerusalem. Mm. And so if you read other gospels, Jesus is kind of like last year in John's gospel, Jesus was sort of back and forth, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee. In Matthew's gospel, this is the 
first time in Jerusalem. So his whole ministry has taken place up in Galilee. He's been kind of on the way to Jerusalem for a little while. But this is the moment where he actually comes into the city that's at the center of the religion, of the culture, of the connection to the empire, all of those things. And so this is a monumental occasion in both the sense that it's Passover and also in the sense that Jesus is coming into the city that's so important, but where he has, at least in in the story of Matthew as we have it, he has never been. Yeah, that's really important. Can you talk a little bit about Passover and the what Jerusalem might have been like around the time of Passover? Yeah, I mean, what I understand of Passover, you know, in the ancient world at the time that there was a temple standing in Jerusalem is that it's it's one of three Chagim, three pilgrimage holidays on the Jewish calendar <clears throat> where people were expected to come to Jerusalem, like make the journey to Jerusalem, which was a quite substantial journey for many people. Yes. And to make an offering there in in celebration of, make an an animal sacrifice, an offering, (laughs) in celebration of of the holiday. This is sort of a, a funny note in some way, but it's almost like, like the exception proves the rule. There actually is something called uh, Pesach Sheni, a second Passover, a month later (laughs) in the calendar for people who can't make it the first time. Like (laughs) the vast, vast, vast majority make it the first time. But if something, if someone is sick, if your leg is broken, if it's impossible for you to pilgrimage, it's so important that you get there that there's another date provided for you. But I mean, what do I imagine happening in Jerusalem during Passover is just like, I'm trying to think if there's anything equivalent in the modern world, but just like, the most bustling place, the most energized and sort of crowded and, you know, you would see whatever diversity there was in terms of expressions of Judaism or, you know, cultures within Judaism would all sort of be up together in the city. And and maybe needless to say, like, it's an incredibly important time religiously where they're remembering the the salvation of the people Israel from the Egyptians. Yes. So it's all, it's all, I, I just imagine this incredibly like high energy, high, sort of high stakes, high, yes. um, high everything. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure it would have been my scene. I think it would have been a little overwhelming. To <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I imagine. No, that's so helpful, Amy. The, the modern parallel I can come up with, although it comes from a different tradition, is the Hajj in the Muslim mm. tradition and people yeah. going to Mecca yes. uh, and the sort of, like when you see those throngs of people around the Kaaba and, and all of those images, people from all over the world and all sorts of different um, languages and nationalities, all there together in this kind of just throng of worship. Josephus gives us a number, I don't have just off the top of my head, but like millions of people, he says, I think were in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Josephus is prone to exaggeration a little bit, but in any case, like a lot. that's a big, it's a lot of people yes. in an ancient city, yes. you know, that wasn't really, didn't have that many people living in it on a daily basis. So it's like yeah. the city's kind of bursting at its seams. Yeah. Like I grew up yeah. in Clemson, South Carolina, population, I don't know, 10,000. Mm. And on a Saturday when there's a Clemson game, there's like 100,000 people in town. So the city designed for 10,000 people has 10 times as many people in it as 
normally are there. That's why I, I sort of think of Jerusalem that way, but even larger. And it's not really designed for that. Like it's yeah. every available space is kind of taken up. Yeah. You also mentioned the connection of Passover, of course, to the uh, escape from slavery in Egypt. In this period, of course, the Jews are colonized by the Romans. And so this sort of like escape from imperial power in the past mm. has very clear resonances with escape from imperial power in the present. That is, it can become an anti-Roman, pro-Israel, sort of a nationalist yeah. holiday. And it made the Romans pretty nervous. If the Jews were going to get stirred up and revolt, it was likely to be at Passover. And in mm. fact, that's what happens in 66 and, and at other times. And so that the, there is a worshipful exuberance. There is also a political nervousness, yeah. I think. And those two things are sort of mingled in this really interesting way. Yeah. yeah I picture like, as you're describing that, almost like a, like a, a pot of water that's brought to boiling. Like it's, it's yes. just got all this, all this stuff that has the potential to boil over in all kinds of ways. It might yes. not, it, yes. might not it might but not, but it might. But it might. Into that mix, then we're going to throw uh, Jesus, <laughs> and, we're, and, we're, <laughs> and then yeah. we're just going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So the text today is Matthew 21, 1 to 17. I'll start out just by reading 1 to 7, and I am reading in the Common English Bible. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that their master needs them. He sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet had said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Then he sat on them. So first, I just wanted to ask you, if you could talk to us a little bit about the Mount of Olives. Mm. I mean, the Mount of Olives is in, in Ezekiel and I think also Zechariah is, it, it's this hill. I don't know if it's really a mountain. It's, you know, it's a hill, big hill, east of Jerusalem that is associated with eschatology, eschatological visions, maybe messianism with with these texts, Zechariah and Ezekiel, that are interested in, in in this moment, like what happens when when something totally new is coming, you yes. know, these, the order as we know it is going to be broken open. At least in Ezekiel, um, I'd have to go back and check Zechariah. It's not named as the Mount of Olives. It just says it's a hill to the east of Jerusalem, which almost makes it more pointed to me that people know. yes. People know this place and yeah. what is associated with this place. And they don't just know it by their name. They know, they know, they know the hill we're talking about. Yeah. That's really helpful. And so when Matthew says Mount of Olives, like if you're a Jewish listener of this text, your ears kind of perk up and you know yeah. what's happening here and that there is some sort of messianic changing of the world kind of connotations happening. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to talk about the cult and the donkey but I think in order to talk about them, we need to first talk about this fulfillment citation in mm-hmm. verse four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is happening here fulfills what the prophet said. 
look, your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. Can you talk to us about that prophecy and what its significance you think might be? Well, I mean, again, this, I see this primarily as a citation from Zechariah, which, you know, again, is a text that's really interested in in what happens when everything changes. (laughs) And chapter nine, verse nine has... Lo, your king is coming to you. He is victorious, triumphant, yet humble, riding on an ass, on a donkey fold by a she-ass. So, you know, you get this image of, of a, a king, of like an incredibly powerful leader who is, who there, there is this sort of like joy element to it, victory and triumph, but also humility. And what what sort of stands out to me in comparing this citation with that quote is it focuses on the humility yeah. and of course on this like you know little parallelism in the poet in the poetry of Zechariah that winds up seeming like they are two different animals but it doesn't lean at this point into that victorious triumphant Yeah. That is, you know, like the beginning of the verse in nine is the rejoice greatly, like raise a shout, Jerusalem, because, you know, your king is triumphant. Right. And at this moment of this, I don't know, what, why do you think that's not in here? Yeah, no, I think that's really important that Matthew has seemingly on intentionally left out that in the CEB, he is righteous and victorious. Yeah. What is it in the NRSV? Triumphant? Uh, victorious and triumphant, yeah. Yeah, so Zechariah has given us this language, victory and victorious and triumphant. And Matthew has given us what comes right before it and what comes right after it, but has yeah. left that line out, which makes you think, well, Matthew knew what he was doing and he chose. He does not want to talk about Jesus as triumphant and victorious at this moment, which I just think is kind of interesting when we've, when we've been talking about this contrast of kingdoms from the very beginning of this gospel and the Magi showing up to Herod and saying, where is your king? And Mm -hmm. here we have a king, but the king's characteristic fundamentally is humility. And so I just think Matthew is wanting us to sort of reframe what we think about kingship. And he's a little nervous that that sort of victorious and triumphant is going to make us think some sort of power over. Yeah. And not some sort of like lifting up or some alternative that Jesus in Matthew's reading anyway is is offering. That's I really like that way of thinking about it, Bobby. And I'm I was thinking as you were talking about the idea that like the the triumphant part, the victory part is is maybe in the resurrection, but is right. not riding on a donkey. Right. Like what's riding on the donkey is the humble part. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. That's interesting and important. And also like the Zechariah has riding on a donkey as being what the king is going to do. So I'm not sure that the donkeyness of it is actually humble. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, that may be fine. I I don't know. I don't know how one typically would ride around. (laughs) What's the mode of transportation? (laughs) Like, I don't know if it's a sign of humility that you're riding on a donkey or you're just are humble and also riding on a donkey. I I would tend to read it that second way. You are you are riding on a donkey. You are both humble and riding. And also, you're riding on a donkey. Yeah, and maybe <laughs> yeah. you would read it like maybe Pilate is coming into town on his you know stallion or whatever, and here comes Jesus on his little donkey. Maybe one. Do- maybe maybe you do read it that way. 
Um, I tend to read the humility coming out of the the fact that it's not including righteous and victorious. But anyway. Yeah. If you read yeah, on no, in Zechariah. I, I hear that. But the humility is in the Hebrew Bible too. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just alongside all that it is. triumph. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to decide whether like, you know, yeah. If I, if I came into town in my Yaris, <laughs> people would be like, that dude's really humble uh, or at least relatively poor. And, um, and I don't know if the donkey has that sort of connotation. Like yeah. if you're supposed to read that as like, he could be in his Cadillac, but instead he, are Cadillacs even cool anymore? I don't know. Tesla, he if could be in his needs Tesla. A, needs a, a master's thesis. I feel like that would be a good topic. Yeah. What was that? Social economic understanding of donkey riding. Of donkeys. Biblical times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if you read on in that Zechariah passage, which Matthew does not do, but in verse 10, it describes that king, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. Mm-hmm. Like, I really love that imagery. If you think about a king whose role is basically to end the wars, right? Cut off the armaments, yeah. cut off the, the, the implements used in battle, and so there will just be peace under the rule of this king that Zechariah is envisioning, who Matthew takes to be Jesus. I just think that's a really lovely image for what kingship might be. Yeah. Yeah. You alluded to, we've got two animals here. So, I mean, very clearly in Matthew, Jesus says, go get the donkey and the colt. And then this happened to fulfill the prophecy. And then they brought him the donkey and the colt and they lay their clothes on them and he sat on them. So very clearly in Matthew's version, which which is different than the other gospels, Jesus has two animals. Yeah. Can you talk to us about what's going on there? Like why why two animals do you think? I mean, my, the way this was, I think, pretty explicitly taught to me was was that's a just a function of like the poetic form that's being used in the Hebrew Bible and Zechariah, that it was it was common to sort of like repeat a refrain in slightly different words. Right. But it was not understood to be like literally a second thing. It was just, you're you're sort of like leaning a little more heavily into that idea. Yeah. With different descriptors. Yeah. And then, I mean, what's, what's surprising or curious to me is, is the idea that maybe you can offer an alternative to this, that Matthew didn't get that. Yeah. Like if, if that were the case, I don't know. Wouldn't wouldn't Matthew have been familiar with poetic forms in the Hebrew Bible? This what this is an important point, and somebody raised this in the Bible Worm Collaborative the other day because that's the way you normally read it, and that's my explanation that I have, sort of in my hip pocket, is Matthew is being very literal about yeah. what is a poetic parallelism in the Hebrew. Yeah, and he didn't understand poetic parallelism, mm-hmm. but Matthew, we have seen knows his he Hebrew knows scripture. Some stuff. Yeah. And it is really surprising to think he just doesn't understand parallelism. But I cannot for the life of me think of any other explanation for why there are two animals other than the prophecies taken very literally says there are two and so there must be two. Okay, here this is kind of dumb. You ready for my dumb idea? Mm-hmm. You might want to delete this later. <laughs> <laughs> Mark the point in the recording. No I mean, there are a lot of places in the New Testament, and I I would guess, I would venture to say with Matthew in particular, although I can't name one, where 
It seems like the New Testament author is intentionally taking something from the Hebrew Bible and taking it in a different context and changing the way that we're supposed to read it. So it's like, it is connected to the Hebrew Bible, but but you can recognize that in the context of the Hebrew Bible, that is not what it meant. Yes. So I almost, I don't know, it, I guess Matthew's not very playful, but it seems like a playful way to do that kind of same thing, to say like, we're going to take this text, but we're going to interpret it differently, and Jesus is going to sit on two animals. Okay, you can delete that whole part. <laughs> no, no, I actually, I really, really love that. I love that, except what I want to do with it, and this is how the Bible Room Collaborative helped me get here a little bit too, is uh, they were reading commentaries that talk about the entry into Jerusalem that Jesus did as street theater, basically. Like he's mm. trying to create a spectacle. And so if you tell the story, like if you think, how can I create the biggest spectacle? That's interesting. Then riding in on two animals, people are like, what is that guy doing? Yeah. And then it becomes clear that he's not just like riding to town on his donkey, right? But In which case he might not even be noticed. Yeah. But if you and see then, someone, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then people just, who know their mm-hmm. scriptures see somebody riding on a, a donkey and a colt and they go, oh my gosh. That's like Zechariah 9.9. Right. You can't. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they see it and they're like, oh, that's what. And so Jesus is enacting the parable in a way that draws attention to himself. Very interesting. They were getting that from my old teacher, uh, Chuck Campbell, who was at Columbia Seminary when I was there and then went on to Duke after that. And somebody else who I didn't write down. (laughs) Maybe it was Borg and Crossan. Um, talk about uh, this entry as street theater. But I think that's worth pondering. I I like that more than Matthew is a little dense about poetry. I I mean, it doesn't make sense to say Matthew's dense, I don't think. Matthew has not been dense up until now. He hasn't been dense up until this point. Like, maybe he's getting tired, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. So the other thing that's interesting to me in this section, I mean, there's a lot that's interesting, but Jesus's command is, hey, go find a donkey and a colt. If anyone says anything, Mm -hmm. say their master needs them. Mm -hmm. So it's not like go find the owner and ask for permission. It's just like, I mean, this is like a donkey jacking or something. Um, Is that how you read it? You know, I I am more and more liking the idea of street theater because part of what stands out to me is like, when you read this passage, the, the bulk of it is a I don't know, for me, is like these instructions to be, yeah, basically go steal some animals and how you're going to like get them from where they are to where I need them. And that is very much not in the prophecy that we're trying to fulfill here. So it almost reads like they get there. Like when you read the prophecy, it seems like something that's just naturally going to happen. Not that you're going to arrive in Jerusalem and be like, oh, shoot, we don't have the donkey. Like (laughs) (laughs) someone go steal a donkey. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more and more liking the idea that this this was an, a way to get people's attention. Yeah. See what's coming. That language of their master needs them, like the way that that, so the, what it's suggesting there is that even if they have another owner, yeah. Jesus is in fact their rightful owner. My translation, the NRSV says the Lord needs them with a capital oh, L. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the Greek That's a, there? That's really it? a different reading. <laughs> Yeah, so it's hakurias autone. So kurias could be way, lord, yeah. could be owner, yeah. could be math. Like that that word yeah. does covers a lot yeah. of territory, but it is the word that's used for lord. So yeah, so the lord of them needs them. And so it could be 
Like there's, I love that where the language has so many different resonances. Like yeah. the Lord needs them. If you read that through a Hebrew Bible understanding of what it means when you say the Lord yeah. is making a theological claim. Uh, one could also read it as their, their legitimate owner needs them. So, yeah. so we, we end this section with Jesus. They, the disciples have draped their, their clothes um, or their robes over the um, donkey and the cult, and then Jesus is sitting on them. So just as a um, another note there that I read from the Jewish Annotated New Testament and that comment on this section done by Aaron Gale says that um, the them that Jesus sat on them is referring to the cloaks, not to the animals. I don't know how that totally changes the image, but I think there are less exciting options available. <laughs> sitting on yeah, I, I thought about that. I thought about that. I don't, I like it better if Jesus is riding too. Yeah. True circus entry. Yeah. Okay, continue. I interrupted you. No, no, no. So I think the reality is the Greek there's just outone. And so it has a, it's a, if I were grading a student paper, if I were grading Matthew's paper, I would say unclear antecedent. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I think it could be the clothes. I think it could be the animals. Mm-hmm. That my problem with the uh, they're sitting on the clothes is they just drape the clothes over the two animals. And so in my mind, those things are not different, right? If you're sitting on the clothes that have been draped over two animals, you're sitting on two animals. But somehow it created this image in my head of instead of sitting on both animals at the same time, that like Jesus would like go a little bit on one animal and then get off and get <laughs> yeah, on the other animal. animal. Yeah. <laughs> and then, which is awkward, but does it just hurts my hips to think about. <laughs> yeah yeah symbolically it's a really beautiful idea like if you think about how you would actually do that with your actual human body it is kind of painful to think about yeah anything else we need to say about this first like prepping to come into jerusalem section Mm-mm-mm. i don't think so i think we're ready to go on all right so picking up then in verse eight now a large crowd spread their clothes on the road Others cut palm branches off the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? They asked. The crowds answered, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So can you just help us think a little bit about, so the crowds are spreading clothes on the road and waving palm branches. Mm. Can you just help us think about those actions of the crowd? I, I'm reading this text. I felt particularly moved by the image of the crowd spreading cloaks on the road. Like, you know, these people don't have washing machines. Like they don't have a closet full of stuff. Their cloak matters to them. Yeah. And Jesus isn't even walking directly on the cloak. Right. And so it just feels to me like this. Um, like above and beyond way of like wrapping something that's so precious to you in these, you know, multiple layers for comfort or honor or protect. I don't, it just feels like there's no practical purpose really. I mean, maybe it would prevent some dust from getting on Jesus from the right. dusty road, but it, it causes much more harm to the, you know, person with the cloak than benefit it would. I, I just find it very, I find it very moving. Like this is, it doesn't, like it's a highly honoring yes. thing to do. I really love that. Cause you know, I focus on the, 
you know, if this is the king, then the even the king's animals should not have to touch the ground. Yeah. That's sort of like lifting Jesus up yes. and honoring him in that way. Yes. But the side that you're bringing to it, which I had sort of overlooked a little bit, was the act of giving of oneself that the people really are doing to put something that matters to them that they can't, they don't just have another one hanging in the closet at home or like you said, a laundromat they can go to after. And so the giving of them something that matters to them in order to lift Jesus up. That's order those to two do together that. are really yeah. beautiful. Yeah, those two together. Do you have thoughts about the significance of palm branches? You know, so I'm picturing that it's springtime in Jerusalem and, you know, the branches are coming back to life and getting full and magical and beautiful in this sort of temporary way. I associate, as a modern Jewish person, I associate, you know, waving around branches with a different chag, <laughs> right. with Sukkot. Like that's that's the holiday where that's like literally what you do. You wave branches around. I mean, you do other things too, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the significance of waving the branches at Sukkot? Oh, man. <laughs> it's one of the, um, I feel like I, I have like various hats to try to answer that question with. The way I read it, it's it's sort of like deeply tied into like earth religion and and sort of paganism and <laughs> recognition oh. of like nature and the earth yeah. and the directions of the winds. And this, of course, would not be like a typical Jewish answer, but it's such a it's a, I feel like the ritual fits very strangely, and the rabbis have done a lot of work to try to explain why we do it. But it, yeah, <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, that my experience of it is that it is really an honoring of harvest and the cycles of the earth. And yeah. we just build some liturgy around it. So that's probably not a very good Jewish answer. But if I can build on the answer for here, and yes. then you can probably give us the better Jewish answer. I bet you know. Uh, I cannot do that. Okay, great. Then we'll just don't need to do that. Like, I wonder, I read the combination of this, like laying out their cloaks and taking branches from the trees as, as sort of like, Jesus is being welcomed by the people with their proverbial branches, which is their cloak, and by the trees with their proverbial oh, cloaks. I love that. Like there's this, like the people welcome Jesus and the earth welcomes. Oh, that's Jesus. beautiful. Like all creation rejoices. All creation. Or like that. Yeah. Like there's this, it just it feels like it adds another layer of what the imagined role of Jesus is is in this moment, that it's not just as sort of king of the empire, you know, yeah. it's it's more cosmic than that. That's beautiful. I love that. My interpretation is much more simple-minded as our and friend. probably correct. <laughs> yeah. Professor David. <laughs> no, it's not. There's, I don't know that there's a correct answer here, but the, the place that resonates for me is actually a couple references in the books of the Maccabees which is not a place that we normally go. But as you know, these are Jewish books from the second century BCE that are now in the deuterocanonical texts in the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Uh, and so when the Maccabees, you know, they have revolted against the Greeks and for just a time established their own independent Jewish state before the Romans are going to come later. And so as they sort of defeat Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the king of Greece, and the Maccabees occupied Jerusalem. First uh, Maccabees 13 says, the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps mm -hmm. and cymbals and stringed instruments. 
a great mm-hmm. enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And so the palm branches in that text are sort of celebrating a military victory over an occupying force. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a similar reference in 2 Maccabees 10, in which it's actually talking about Hanukkah, and it's saying we're going to celebrate like we celebrate at Sukkot by waving these palm branches, but now it's celebrating the Maccabean victory again and the rededication of the temple. So I wonder, in this context of messianic arrival, the Mount of Olives, mm-hmm and this sort of Passover moment, nationalistic fervor, if the palm branches are a way of acknowledging in some way this idea that the Messiah is going to overthrow the occupying force of Rome. Now, if you read it that way, then I think you would probably need to take the further step of the people have one understanding of what that might look like, and Jesus is doing something other than that. Yeah, Like overthrowing like the whole concept of empire by being killed and resurrected. But in any case, that this is sort of a, maybe it's, ironic's not exactly the right word, but the, the people get what's happening, but they don't fully but get it don't. yet. Because yeah, how, could, right. how could they? Right. I don't know. I don't, I, I got onto this idea two years ago because Luke leaves out the palm branches on Palm Sunday. And I was like, mm-hmm. why does he leave it out? And what I concluded there was he was trying to avoid the nationalistic implications. And so then I then I thought, well, Very interesting. if he was trying to avoid it, then Matthew must be not avoiding. Not so avoiding. that's where I land on it. Yeah, yeah. I will say, um, somewhat relatedly, I just have been reading Second Samuel. My Torah study group is, is we decided instead of just to read the Torah, we're going to read through the entire Hebrew Bible. And so oh, nice. we just finished the book of Second Samuel. And... We just read the narrative of King David. He, he, um, his son Absalom, you know, kind of tries to overthrow him, and David leaves Jerusalem during that time. And after Absalom dies, it narrates David coming back into Jerusalem. And there's this whole, there, there's this whole, I don't know, maybe half a chapter dedicated to who is going to go with him. Like he can't go into the city himself. Yeah. Like he should be accompanied by someone. And so it's like who. And it has like personal kinship ramifications and it has political ramifications and it has, I don't know, it just, it made reading this feel more maybe sort of grounded to me. Like, oh yeah, if you are the king and you are coming into Jerusalem, who are the people who are with you? Like you're, you know, yeah. That's such an interesting resonance. It's one of the things about sort of street theater or symbolic action is that they catch all of these different, it's like we talk about ritual uh, a lot, but it catches all of these different kind of resonances that can interact. And as with ritual, it's much more interesting to say, look at all the things that connect in this action than it is to say, here's the one right reading of what's happening here. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about what they're saying here? Hosanna to the son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Yeah. So at least the the first part of it is mostly from Psalm 118, although it doesn't have to the son of David in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ana Adonai Hoshiana uh, means like, you know, p- please God answer us, save us. And it's recited, um, it's part of Hallel, which is recited at Passover and some other times of the year. Um, it's in a section of Psalms that that is called Hallel before all the hallelujahs. <laughs> yeah. 
And then it and then it has this second line, which actually that the NJPS translates a little bit differently than blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It translated as blessed, may he who enters, the one who comes, be blessed in the name of the Lord. Mm. Which again, it's I think the Hebrew can be read either way. It's just um, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's a matter of where you're trying to go with that. Yeah. With that translation. So this is part of the liturgy that would have been recited at this time of year and is is still recited periodically during the year on the Jewish calendar. So Hosanna is sort of said as a shout of praise. Yeah. But it literally means save us. Save us. Can you talk about how the how that works together? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Because you don't envision these people as like crying out in pain like save us, do you? Like, they're sort of triumphal. They are. I mean, I guess I associate those things sort of like you wouldn't cry out to someone who you didn't believe had that power to do it. Yeah. You know? So sort of alongside the praise, there's a desire to be sort of like included in the um, fortune? (laughs) (laughs) Included in the you know, to be, I don't know, to be in on in on it. And so, you know, you're praising this. I like that. Deity who is powerful and also calling out, like, don't forget us. Like, you are the only one who has the power to yeah. save us. I like that. So you're, you're jubilant because the one who has the power to save is now present or yeah. now able to save or something like that. Yeah, In the Hebrew I think Bible, so. we're talking about God and Matthew seems to. The people here seem to be trans- yeah. transferring that to Jesus in some kind of a way. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think about that? No, that's really helpful. I, I really like that a lot. I struggle with that. Because for a while, I just thought like, oh, yeah, Hosanna is just a shout of praise. And then I thought, oh, no, it's actually like a cry for help. And so then I had this period where I just interpreted this as like they're crying out to Jesus for help. But then I thought, no, that's not exactly right either. And so the way you just explained it actually brings those two together in a way that's really helpful for me. It's kind of just reminding me of like when we've been through some period in which political parties that I do not think are in the best interests of the people are in power. And then somebody gets elected that more represents my views. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm crying out like I'm happy and I'm saying yeah. like, save us, you know. So it's 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 similar mm. in a, like a yeah, more mundane a sense. sense. Yeah. I'm not sad that, you know, I'm not crying out in pain exactly, but I'm jubilant that they can now address the things that I think are wrong in the world. So it's simultaneously uh, expressing the need for saving and also joy at, at their arrival. Yeah. But it's highly relational. It's not just praise. It's, yeah. an, you know, answer us, save us. Like yeah. it's, yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bible Worms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoyed the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we 
hope that you will consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then goes away again and spends the night and then comes back the next day. In Matthew's gospel, the narrative just continues on. So Jesus coming into Jerusalem with all of this shouting and uh, the cloaks and the donkeys and all of these things. And then we pick up in verse 12. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. So I feel like in the past we have talked about the triumphal entry and we've talked about the overturning Mm -hmm. of the temple money changers tables, but Matthew puts those two together. So like Jesus just comes into town, goes straight to the temple and throws over the money changers and the dove sellers. Can you help us think about the symbolic Who are those people? Why is Jesus upset with them? Yeah, so this is such an interesting scene because I think, okay, here's my here's my read of it. I don't think there's anything any reason to believe that the people are like scamming people. Yeah. I think of it more, I think I've used this example before, but like, I don't know if they still have these, those little machines that would be like by a duck pond and you put a quarter in the machine in order to get the appropriate duck food because no one carries duck food with them. Yeah. And these people have come to the temple. They need to make an offering. They have traveled really far. It is unrealistic to think they would be able to bring an animal with them and then that the animal would arrive perfectly unblemished and ready to be sacrificed. And so this seems like... This is just, this is the system to make sure that people have what they need and don't have to figure out how to travel yeah. Yeah. with like an animal wrapped in bubble wrap. So if that's the case, if the, the problem is not that the people themselves are doing something that's corrupt, I think the critique is of the whole, the whole system, like the whole idea that you can, that you can go out in the world and do whatever evil you do and then come into the temple and make your sacrifice and feel like you have done the thing you are supposed to do. Yes. Which is the critique that we've been seeing all along, all the way back into the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. I would argue that we can make the same critique of modern religion now, including modern Christianity. Like it's, we all want to know what is the thing we can do that we don't have to change our whole life, but we'll be good with God. So Jesus is saying you can't do that. And the fact that this in Matthew's gospel is put right after the entry into Jerusalem to me is like, this is the whole, this is the whole of it. Like this is the whole purpose. Like you, you, there's no, there's no way, there's, there's no other way. Like, yeah. and, and the, the temple, I think, in Jesus' mind has become like a stumbling block because people pretend or people imagine that they are leading pious lives and they're not. Amy, that was beautiful. 
That was so well said. <laughs> I just want to pause and go back to say to note that you you used the image of animals wrapped in bubble wrap, and that was really hilarious. <laughs> and I'm like, it, it went by so fast that I didn't that I you didn't, didn't have catch a it to until after it was too late. So I just bleeding. want to go back and just pause. Can you make over the sound of a sheep wrapped in bubble wrap? I feel like you can. <laughs> <laughs> but out, that aside, everything else you said was so spot on in my reading that. You, you have been using the phrase I, uh, al- all along since the fall when we were in the Hebrew Bible about, about people seeking liturgical solutions for ethical problems or something like that. Mm. We, we've seen it in Amos. We've seen it in Micah. People want the short circuit, like here's the way the religious authority, whatever it is at the time, can make up for these um, ethical misdeeds that we do in the living of our lives. Mm-hmm. We saw that tr- as true in the Hebrew prophets. We see it true, as you were saying today, in religious communities of all sorts. Mm-hmm. We see it here in the way that official sort of temple-based uh, religion is being critiqued. The, what Jesus says there, uh, you've made it a hideout for crooks, is a mm-hmm. reference to Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 11, where he's making exactly the critique you're talking about. People are doing all sorts of things, unethical, and then coming to the temple and trying to use religion as a way of covering up their, like making up for their ethical uh, misdeeds. So I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I I really love the way you said that. So then it's not that these particular money changers or these dove sellers are a problem. It's that the whole, the religious system, which seeks to provide liturgical solutions to ethical problems is is misguided. Mm-hmm. And instead, the religious, the temple should be, the religious uh, center should be, as Jesus says, well, I mean, here it's, uh, my house will be called a house of prayer. Mm-hmm. And so instead of that, it should be a house of prayer, which is a reference back to Isaiah 56. And I would even add to that, Bobby, I don't think that it is inherent in the temple system that it must be. Right. I don't think it's meant to be a liturgical solution to an ethical problem. I think that is a corruption of it that has happened over the course of time or that enough people are using it that way, abusing it that way, that it's a problem. Yes. I agree with you fully. And thank you for making that point clear because I mean that. I mean, I mean, that's what I mean, but maybe not what I have said. I think that's exactly right. That quotation from Isaiah 56, uh, what Isaiah actually says, so my house will be known as a house of prayer for all people, says the Lord God, who gathers Israel's outcasts. I will gather still others to those I have already gathered, is I think hmm. right in line with what you were saying, that there is, like, there is a vision for what the temple could be and should be and rightly is. And then there is the way that people practice religion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is true, not just of the temple, but of other forms of religion then and now, as you're saying. And, uh, and so Jeremiah was thinking about how do we help this religion become what it's meant to be this religious expression. Isaiah was thinking about that. Jesus is thinking about that. We're thinking about that. So there is an ideal and humans, when we get involved, we tend, we tend to mess it up and seek easier ways out. Yeah. We sure do. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about the way Matthew tells this story is he he goes from there straight into another text, which is not normally associated 
with the overturning of the money changers in the temple, starting in verse 14. People who were blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and legal experts saw the amazing things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were angry. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, he answered. Haven't you ever read from the mouths of babies and infants you've arranged praise for yourself? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So as soon as Jesus clears out the temple, it's not actually cleared out. Suddenly there's, I mean, there's the lame and the blind and the children. The chief priests and the legal experts also still seem to be there, but you kind of get this image of the like clearing out of the one way of operating suddenly brings in, like it gets filled in immediately Mm. with outcasts and the blind and the lame and the children. Do you have thoughts about that, that move from clearing out the temple to these healing stories? You know, it's interesting because, you know, just there's a lot of healing stories, right? It's not like, it's not like Jesus hasn't been healing people all along the way. But if we're thinking about, again, this like real concentration here of like Jesus just came into Jerusalem and goes directly into the temple and, you know, tries to overthrow the way things have been running in the temple and then goes directly into a healing. It does seem like it's a particularly concentrated yes. pathway from, from what was to what, what Matthew says will, will be or should be. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. And it comes back to me to that Isaiah 56 that we just quoted. So you've made my house a den of robbers and thieves. My house should be known as a prayer for all peoples who gathers the outcasts. And so there's this sort of immediate, mm. like, it's not that, it's this. Oh, I love that. You know, it was when you cited that whole um, quote from Isaiah before, I was like, oh, I love that. And I wonder if that would have been evoked for just hearing the first part of that verse, if people would have known what came next. Yeah. And I love that, that then he just enacts what came next. Exactly. So maybe we're still thinking about street theater. Maybe we're still thinking about mm. symbolic action. But it, I think that's exactly right. This really is an, in, an enacting of that. And so the, the religious authority, the establishment religion, then and now, has become focused on sort of how do we carry out religious ritual smoothly and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. efficiently. Mm-hmm. Happened to the temple, happens to us. It should not be what's happened. That should not be what the religious community is up to. The religious community should be up to the welcoming of the outcast, the blind, the lame, the children, and, and the restoration of wholeness to, the, to those folks. And, and there it is. And that's what, that's what the new Messiah, the new king coming into Jerusalem, sort of offering an alternative way, not just for framing how the political sphere works, but also how the religious sphere should work. Um, not in sort of alliance with the powers of empire that are interested in efficiency, but in this alternative way that's interested in healing of of the outcast. I love that. The children sort of surprised me here, mm. as children do. <laughs> but you know, like you hear <laughs> you hear all sorts of stories about Jesus healing people, but here he's healing people, and then the children are suddenly shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David." 
Do you have thoughts about those kids? I mean, I think my my thought about it is, you know, kids, um, they haven't learned the social scripts yet. <laughs> and they they often come to what seem to be logical and sometimes quite funny conclusions just based on what they've seen or like the yes. two things they just saw right next to each other, you know? And so while adults can get all, it's so much more complicated for us because we're trying to layer our entire life of not just social scripts, but like our experience in the world and our, you know, everything's more complicated for kids. It's not complicated. They just saw two things happen back to back or whatever it was. And they come to a conclusion and they say it. And it seems like in this situation, they don't realize, or maybe they don't care, that what they're saying is stirring the pot <laughs> pretty big time. They just say the thing that seems obvious to them and then run off and get an ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really love that, Amy. And it, it reminds me of a conversation we had a few weeks ago about Matthew 18. And you were talking about children not having yet been sort of shaped by the imagination of the empire. They still have sort of, they don't know what they're supposed to think. So they react in pre-imperial ways. I, I really love that connection. And so here, here maybe it's happening again. That text, we also talked about the status of children in the ancient world as basically mm. being not people. Mm-hmm. And so the presence of children here, along with these other groups that would have been excluded from full participation in the religious community, mm-hmm. I think is also important that it's so it's the outcast, those with physical ailments and also people who socially do not have status. Those are the ones that Jesus is with. Those are the ones who are rejoicing together. And it sort of brings us back to that concept of micro people that we talked about a few weeks Mm. back where the kingdom of heaven here, the religious, the the religious center should be welcoming those, the micro people who sometimes are not included in this system that we establish of efficiency and liturgy and making sure everything happens properly. When we clear all of that out, it creates space for these other, these other folks with less status to be whole and to celebrate. Yeah. Amy, there's one thing that I forgot to talk about <laughs> back in the very first part of this. So in verse 10, when Jesus you entered can't Jerusalem, go backwards. I'm going backwards. I'm out of control today. Okay. There in no verse rules. 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. The word used there in Greek is seo, which is where we get the word seismic. And so wow. like it is sort of like metaphorically talking about a shaking like an earthquake. And I just think it's so interesting to think about in light of what we've just talked about with the sort of entry into Jerusalem, the challenging of the religious center, the practice of establishment religion, the welcoming of the outcasts. And to think about that as like an earthquake, right? Yeah. Jesus's arrival, like really literally shakes things up. Yeah. We're going to see earthquakes more at the end of Matthew's gospel, which is probably worth keeping in mind. But I, I just like that image that Jesus is quite, quite literally his arrival shakes the earth. My, um, my study Bible has a note that refers me back to Matthew chapter two, verse three, which is the, the very beginning, the, you know, the birth of Jesus when King Herod hears about it. 
It just says oh, yeah. in English, it says he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. I don't know if it's actually the same Greek word or if or if my commentator is just trying to get me to, I don't know, th- think of that that kind of energy, everything being shaken up in a, in a kind of scary way. Yeah. I don't think that Greek is the same there, but I do think, I like that connection of people tremble. Yeah. They trembled in a little way when the baby was born. Yeah. They tremble in an earthquake oh, way. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, the, adult the Jesus trembling arrives has gotten Jerusalem. bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Amy, so that brings us to the part of our podcast where we try to think about the resonances of this text with life here and now. What yeah. are you seeing in this text for today? This is a really concentrated text. <laughs> really, yeah. Matthew really just went from one thing to another. What's really resonating for me right now is that's maybe the thought or the question, like this, this scene of Jesus going into the temple and saying, what's happening in here is over. We're not doing yes. this anymore. And just to sort of pause in that moment, you know, being in a, in a modern religious community, like how frightening it is to look at, at your religious community and saying, there are things that are not working, like fundamental things. They're yeah. working enough they're working enough that people are still coming from pilgrimage. Like we have a system, they're working enough, but you just have that feeling that they're also a stumbling block and they're also not inviting everyone in. And they're, you know, and 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 to have this sort of chutzpah, the courage to say, like, we're gonna stop, we're gonna stop doing this and see what happens, see what fills that space. But the willingness to push what used to be there out of the space to see what yes. what else will show up, gosh, that's hard. Yeah. It's really hard because there's, I have this fear that if we stop doing things in my own community the way that we have done things for so long, that nothing will show up in its place. And, and that'll be it. It'll just be dead. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe some, whatever. But it, I just think it, it's a huge act of courage and faith to, to try to create that space. And creating that space is letting go of things that are, that's not, I mean, it serves some purpose. And it does have an ideal form in which it could work. And, you know, all those things. And I don't know. I'm really feeling the tension lately between serving the people for whom our systems are working and thinking about the people for whom our systems are not working. Yes. So it stirred me up, created little <laughs> earthquakes in me, Bobby. That's really important, Amy. And you know, this idea that in this text, it's not that nobody showed up. It's that right. no, cultural nobodies showed up. And the question of whether you can sustain a community that way, like when the people that you have are outcasts and mm-hmm. children, and what does that mean for the operation of the institution? That's difficult, and it can only sustain itself in that way for, for so long. Mm-hmm. Reading this, you know, on Palm Sunday, I love everything that you've, that you've said about it. And Palm Sunday, in my experience, is often this kind of triumphal moment. And one of the things that's interesting to me in this text is that Matthew mm. exactly removes the yeah. word triumphant, victorious, from Zechariah 9.9. And so this version of the Palm Sunday story is not meant to be the triumphal entry. It's meant to be the humble entry into Jerusalem, right? Which nonetheless shakes the very core of the religious and political community. And 
I really love that idea that one coming in humility, one who is disrupting the normal flow of operations, one who is willing to engage, interact, and healing and life-giving ways with those who are on the outskirts, um, those who are on the outskirts of society and little children, like that's what that's what the entry is about. There's nothing at all triumphal about that in the traditional sense, but it is an enacting of all these tri- sort of triumphant things, like these visionary things that Isaiah was talking about and yeah. the things that Jeremiah was critiquing like these long, long traditions that we've been pulling out of the Hebrew Bible. And it's in some ways getting past the need to be triumphant and embracing the humility of it is exactly what makes it possible. So I think for me, there's the challenge here of de-triumphing yeah. <laughs> Palm Sunday and not being so interested in victory and celebration. Yeah in the first instance, but trying to think about exactly what you're talking about. How do we clear out the spaces? How do we shake up the worlds we inhabit to make space for people for whom space is not always made? Mm -hmm. And then that's the triumph, right? That's when we get, that's when we get to celebrate when we figured out how to do that. I agree with you that it's hard to do institutionally and sitting here in my tenured position at a college, you know, I don't have to, to turn the lights on at the church on Sunday. And so I don't know how one actually does that, but I really do think that's kind of the image that's here is we've got to figure out ways of operating that are disrupting the connection to the imperial modes of thinking and returning to the true roots of what the religious community has been envisioned from the Hebrew prophets to Jesus and onward. That's, That's the task this text calls us to. Yeah, it calls us to disruption. <laughs> what can you disrupt this week, kind listeners? <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea of street theater. My Chuck Campbell, mm. who I was talking about earlier, my preaching professor in college, he was all about being on the streets and doing theater and like being disruptive and these like provocative ways, yeah. like riding two donkeys at the same time. <laughs> and I, I love that. I, I am not a person who has done that very well in my life, but I love to think about what, what you might do. Yeah. Okay, Amy. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. I, I really am thinking more thoughtfully about this text after talking with you. I, I appreciate it. Our next regular episode will be our Easter episode, which is Matthew 28, 1 to 10. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'll be it's here. It's a good one. All right. <laughs> I've heard that story. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> All right. I'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dan O'Sobbs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll read Matthew's version of the Easter story as told in Matthew 28, 1-10. Until then, keep on digging.